If you've been told to pull up your socks, then make sure it's a pair of TNT socks. The TNT shop is now open at tntradio.live. You're listening to Bruce DeTorres on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. This is World Stage, exposing the tyrannies and exploring our power with deep dives into history, current events, dangerous trends, and the nature of reality. Before I introduce my guest, I want to describe a new post at childrenshealthdefense.org, an article, CDC reports largest infant mortality rate increase in 20 years, published November 13th. U.S. infant mortality from all causes rose 3% in the year 2021 to 22, the first increase since 2001. According to a report from the National Center for Health Statistics, the trend represents a sharp reversal as between 2000 and 2020, infant deaths decreased by 21%. Daniel Eli, PhD, co-author of the report, told Decatur, Illinois TV station WAND, he wasn't sure if the increase was an anomaly or the start of a new disturbing trend. Check out childrenshealthdefense.org for indispensable coverage of the health catastrophe that is afflicting America as our pharmaceutical industries have captured the regulatory agencies that should be protecting us. With me this hour is Catherine Watt, an American Catholic writer and paralegal with a philosophy and natural sciences degree from Penn State, who has worked as a reporter for small newspapers since 2005. She has published several independent journalism blogs covering local corporate and government corruption and food, water, and energy security issues since 2020. She has investigated changes to United States law that block prosecution of COVID-era biomedical crimes. Her primary work product is a timeline called the American Domestic Bioterrorism Program, Essential Reading that can be found at her Substack, Ballywick, excuse me, Bailiwicknews.substack.com. Thank you very much for joining me today, Catherine. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for inviting me. It's an honor because the work you're publishing really is uh, stands alone. It's irreplaceable. You've got great. There are others, you know, Sasha Ladipova, et cetera, but yours is the kind of thing. And it, I was thrilled to say, aha, you're a paralegal. Well, of course, your writing is so thorough. You know, a lawyer, even or I, a layperson, don't correct me because I'm just a layperson say, claiming this. I could go to a jury or a court and make a hell of a case just reading the voluminous um, documentation you, you do provide at Bailiwick news.substack um so please if you wouldn't mind tell me what were you doing and what did you think about covid when it first appeared around january 2020 and what did you discover throughout that first spring and then in the next couple of years that inspired you to start publishing the amazing work you're publishing um, so ahead of 2020, I had been working for about 15 years doing 
independent writing about local government um, and local corporate corruption, as you said. Um, and I got my sort of start for that um, by working with the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund um, because, not because, but one of the things they offer is an analysis of the preemption doctrine, which is a legal principle that says in these local cases about like um, food production and water um, quality that the state, like Pennsylvania, New Jersey, states like that, um, and the corporations that want to come into a smaller local community preempt whatever that local community wants to do as far as passing laws to protect their own water or protect their own food production or farms. Um, and so that's one of the things I had been doing, mostly what I've been doing for the 15 years before COVID came along in January 2020. And by the end of 2019, I had kind of, um, I guess, gotten to a point where I thought it was a dead end. So I wasn't going to be working on it for a while. And I was thinking about what to do next. And then the announcements came out about this new, supposedly new um, communicable communicable disease. And so at the beginning, like most people, I think I was just trying to figure out what was going on. Um, and I was treating what the government was saying as though it were credible. Um, but at the same time, one of the writers that I followed on issues like local energy security um, was John Michael Greer, who has a website called Ecosophia. And at his site, he started very early in February and March pulling up some of the studies about um, how respiratory illnesses like colds and flus, when there is a new version, how they come through a population. And usually there's a peak at about six weeks and then it's done with by about three months. And so I was listening to that and watching the comments there. And he also pulled up a number of articles about antibody dependent enhancement as connected to um, vaccine attempts that had been made in the past for SARS and flus and things like that to make the point that he did not think that the proposed vaccine for coronavirus is, was going to be workable and that it would probably have more harm than good. And so I thought in February and March that things would blow over. And then when they didn't, when things ramped up even more in March of 2020 with the lockdowns and the mask mandates and the school closures, um, I started to get a little concerned. And then by May, I was very, very concerned. Um, I don't know if that answers the question, but. Well, it sure did, because uh, it, it's important to just to see how you, you approached it then. Uh, how did you how did you roll up your sleeves thereafter and what did you start finding and when did you start publishing and posting about it? Um, well, I published about it quite early because I had already had Bailiwick News set up since 2016 to do the local reporting about the place where I live. Um, and then I sort of switched it to just collecting some of the scientific studies and writing about that, collecting information about lockdowns and mask mandates, um, things like that. And then um, 
because I am a paralegal and that's how I think about things, I started watching the court cases. And there was a really good case in Pennsylvania called Butler versus Wolf that was filed by the county of Butler and a number of businesses across the state um, against Governor Tom Wolf about the executive orders and against the health secretary, um, Levine, about the health orders saying, these are unconstitutional because they were the ones about um, occupancy restrictions at restaurants and closures of certain kinds of businesses like hairstylists and things like that. And so that case made it through to a federal judge um, by September 2020. And his first order was very, very good. He said, yes, these plaintiffs are correct. This is unconstitutional overreach by the executive branch. Um, these executive orders need to be nullified, basically. And I thought, okay, this is cool. And then three weeks later, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals put a block on his order and left all of the um, mandates and orders in place. And so I continued following that as it got appealed up through the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, I could talk about that more, but that that was how I got started with the tracking the legal developments. And then that took me through to January 2022 when I heard Todd Callender's podcast on Truth for Health. And he talked about the World Health Organization International Health Regulations 2005 amendments as the thing that had come in and was sort of superseding or knocking out constitutional law and criminal law in the United States under these public health emergency conditions as they had been spread across the whole country. Thank you. And, you know, the former actor and director that I've been just fixates for a moment here right now, Catherine, on, the mo on this moment where a judge constitutionally rules that was executive overreach. And I've heard you say in another interview, I think it was, I study this a lot. I think it was you. The Constitution doesn't get suspended just because, and governors and presidents can't just assume dictatorial powers outside the Constitution just because, and right there would be like a huge question to someone who, like me, innocently may have thought, are my rights, you know, there no matter what? And then you kind of fast forward to the to the the big reveal, like at the end of the the, the dramatic arc. It's since two thousand five at least, but you've documented it back a century. The the little laws and the tweaks that have circumvented the Constitution and our rights as Americans, and it's that big picture story and maybe the points along the way the enormity of that story i'd love you to to flesh out as much as you can because then it even it walks us into what you have observed about what does that say like i like the per, one of the purposes of my show here is the nature of reality what are we up against who or what is doing this to us so grab grab those big things any way you want catherine and and walk Try to flush that. We got plenty of time today. Flush, flush that out for me, please. Okay, so the main turning point 
that I focus on, I guess, is the 1944 Public Health Service Act. And that, as it turns out, that goes hand in hand with the 1938 Food, Drug and Cosmetics Act. Um, but the 1944 Public Health Service Act sort of set up the public health service in the United States as a branch of the US military. And I, I think having been studying this stuff for a couple of years now that it was just a way of solidifying the pilot project that had been done in Nazi Germany around um, eugenics and mass murder um, and things like Oxion T44 for getting rid of the dis disabled and children um, in a very medicalized way. And what they did was translate it over to the United States, put it in the Public Health Service Act, but talk about it as if it was just sanitation and vaccinations and programs to get people healthier, because that is a more covert way to get people to cooperate in their own, in injuring themselves, basically. Um, and then it developed from there. Um, the next turning point I generally talk about is 1969, when there was a lot of global interest, at least at the surface level at the United Nations, around um, prohibiting biological and chemical weapons. So the United States under Nixon made a big show of we're going to stop our biological and chemical warfare programs but instead of actually stopping them, they just relabeled them as defensive or prophylactic research or different different ways of talking about it to try to say, we're only going to do this so that we can protect our own military and our own people in the event that some other bad actor comes. But because all of these biological and chemical things are inherently dual use, it was just a continuation of the biological and chemical warfare programs that had already been going on for several decades. Um, and then the next turning point I talk about usually is the 1983 edition of public health emergencies as a category of event or circumstances that appear to authorize the suspension of the constitution and civil liberties and criminal codes. Um, and that was added to the Public Health Service Act in 1983. And it was a very short bill. It was like just over one page. Um, so that was like the platform. And from that 1983 platform, it has been built up very steadily um, through dozens and dozens of congressional acts that expanded that public health emergencies program, connected it to the Food, Drug and Cosmetics Act programs around um, experimental drugs, novel drugs, devices, biologics. And that's what led up to what we now know is the public health emergencies, emergency use authorized medical countermeasures program. That's sort of the merging of the military with the drug manufacturing with the public health system. That was a great summary because in many, many of your posts, or or maybe it's the it's that ever-growing and invaluable timeline, which is the pinned post at your bailiwicknews.substack, 
that has act after act, development after development. But thank you for the for those major turning points. With me is Catherine Watt, who has been researching the changes to U.S. law that block prosecution of COVID-era biomedical crimes. And now here is important information from TNT Radio. You should hear what James Freeman is talking about on the Freeman Report. Last night, I came across a letter from the NHF chief executive here in Wales in the UK. Um, I got given the letter by a whistleblower and it's addressed to the chief executives of all NHS Wales organisations. So that's quite a few people. That, That letter has gone out to quite a lot of people here, senior people here in Wales. And the letter basically says that it is disappointing pointing that the uptake of the COVID-19 injections is so low among healthcare workers, but also the general public more widely. The letter goes on to say that vaccination is the best form of defence. Now, the author is Judith Paget, who, like I said, is the NHS Wales Chief Executive. Well, Judith goes on to say that she's looking forward to hearing about interventions that have been used to raise uptake at the next NHS Wales Leadership Board meeting. But that sounds a bit ominous, doesn't it? Um, What interventions are you talking about, Judith? The Freeman Report and James Freeman on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. The Light is Britain's far-right conspiracy theory paper spreading hate and vicious lies. No, that's what the BBC say. The Light is the only national newspaper bringing you the real news and informed opinion on what's really going on today. You can subscribe, order copies, submit articles and read back issues on our website thelightpaper.co.uk and see for yourself why the establishment are so worried about the uncensored truth getting out to people every month. The Light Paper. Not for right, just right so far. thelightpaper.co.uk The conversation continues. I don't believe it and I think that's a terrible position that I am in that I don't trust my government. This is today's News Talk Radio. TNT. And this is World Stage and with me is Catherine Watt an American Catholic writer and paralegal with a philosophy and natural sciences degree who has been investigating the changes to U.S. law that block prosecution of COVID-era biomedical crimes. What, Catherine, occurs to you to emphasize to me now based on what you just told me, or what is the most urgent thing, if there's one, about what you just uh talked about and to burden you with more to keep track of in this long question now what might be what might be the achilles heel of the situation that when more of us know and can talk about it and do something about it we could start to turn things around okay uh one thing to add is that in addition to these laws being driven into federal law by Congress and U.S. presidents and allowed to stand by federal judges. Um, Although as a parenthetical, I'll say I don't think any federal judges have yet been presented with a challenge specifically aimed at the congressional acts and the presidential signings themselves. Most of the cases so far are nibbling around at the edges without directly confronting the fact that Congress authorized all of this and presidents signed all of these things and they are doing it intentionally 
and using the laws to protect themselves from accountability. The other, the other piece of that is that in addition to the federal ones, sometime around 2001, um, when the anthrax attacks happened on Congress and media organizations in DC, um, a group of public health lawyers led by James Hodge and Lawrence Gostin started putting together, or probably they've been putting it together for years, but they, they publicly announced this model state emergency health powers act, which was a template um, showing or listing all of the things they wanted each state to put into their own state laws at the state legislative level um, and the state governor's level. And then they started a lobbying campaign going to all 50 states and the District of Columbia, and they got most of the legislatures and most of the governors to pass either pieces of the model act or the entire thing. So it is now in, in like mini versions, it's in all 50 states and the District of Columbia, in addition to this congressional federal level. Um, the parts I would emphasize about the federal one is the way that they Congress managed to strip itself of oversight power and block federal judicial review and also block through preemption mechanisms um, challenges to what is being done from the state, tribal, and local level. And that is also the Achilles heel because of or it's and a potential Achilles heel because of federalism in the United States, because the states do in principle retain a lot of their own power. And in this instance, because the way the delegation system has to work where the health and human service secretary says, we announce this public health emergency, we announce these countermeasures, it has to be implemented at the state level and at the county level by the actual people who are healthcare workers and who are law enforcement officers. And to the extent that the state legislatures start to figure this out and repeal their mini versions of these laws, they will set up conditions for a much better head-to-head -head confrontation between the states and the federal government that can actually unpack and put these questions properly before federal courts to say, essentially, does the constitution authorize the federal government to mass murder the people of America by way of these congressional acts or are these congressional acts unconstitutional, have to be stopped, programs have to be stopped and the people who put them into place need to be brought to account. Thank you. Describe for me how it is mass murder. It is mass murder because it was inflicted on people under coercive conditions, telling them that what it was being offered was a treatment or a preventative, the vaccines, for a communicable disease. And it has turned out that none of that is true. And in fact, the contents of the vials are not fully disclosed and are toxic and are injuring and sickening and killing people. And it's all intentional. And that can be seen through the laws and through the contracts written in compliance with the laws. 
And I believe you've documented that on many posts at your Substack, correct? Yes. The, the argument I usually make when people challenge it is that if it were not intentional, and if it were not a military weapon being used for military purposes to kill targets, then it would have stopped and actually it would never have gotten started because it's been known among the scientific research community since the mid nineties that this class of products, mRNA gene, whatever you want to call it, gene weapons is what I call it, um, and the lipid nanoparticles are inherently toxic. And there is plenty of scientific published papers between the mid nineties and the end of 2019 and even since demonstrating that. So it was known that these products should not be used, especially in a broad based on healthy people for any purpose at all. And then when you add on that, the suppression of the alternative treatments and the fraudulent regulatory processes and the fraudulent clinical trials, it becomes very clear that they knew from long before it started what it would do. And they also knew that they had the laws set up so that no one would be able to stop them. And part of that gets into the Brooke Jackson whistleblower case, if you want to talk about that. Yeah, please summarize that for me. So um, Brooke Jackson was a clinical trials manager for a company called Ventavia that was a subcontractor to Pfizer. And she arrived at her clinical trial sites in late August, early September 2020, and immediately noticed that um, all of the regulations she knew of about good or current good clinical practices, which is the name that the FDA has for how you're supposed to conduct clinical trials, were not being followed. She documented it. She reported it to her bosses, her immediate bosses at Ventavia, and they ignored her. She filed a um, anonymous hotline report to the FDA. They also ignored her, but arranged for her to be fired six hours later by contacting Pfizer, who then contacted um, Ventavia. Um, and then she continued pursuing it. She tried to get the Department of Defense to respond by sending them a very detailed letter in December of 2020, just at the point when all of the mainstream media propaganda was talking about and covering the rollout to the general population. Um, and her, her theory of the case was that Pfizer was defrauding the US government by saying that they had done proper clinical trials when she knew that they had not done proper clinical trials. So she told the DOD in December, 2020, they also ignored her. She told the Department of Justice in January, 2021, they sat on it for a full year and gagged her. Um, the judge gagged her and told her she couldn't talk about it. And that was the main year where most people got their first and second injections. Um, in November, 2021, she violated the gag order because of the CDC and the FDA coming after children with the new, like saying that now children should take these injections. And then in January, 2022, hope I get the date right. The Department of Justice came back and said, oh, we looked into it a little bit over the last year and we've decided that nothing improper has been done. Um, 
And we know now that that's because the Department of Justice is in on the crime with Health and Human Services and with the Department of Defense. But she didn't know that at the time. So she refiled her case with a private attorney. And then in April of 2022, Pfizer filed a motion to dismiss her case. And their argument was that based on the contracts they had signed with the Department of Defense, the Army, they were never required to do proper clinical trials because those clinical trials were considered out of scope, not part of the contract. What they were doing was producing prototypes and doing a demonstration project to show that they could quickly manufacture 100 million doses of whatever it was that the DOD provided them with the raw materials provided them with the intellectual property. Um, and so they couldn't have defrauded the US government because there was never a requirement that clinical trials be conducted in a valid way. And then in October, 2022, the Department of Justice came back into the case on Pfizer's side and said, yes, that is correct. We, the government, the US government through the DOD did in fact sign a contract with Pfizer that never required proper clinical trials or valid evidence of safety or efficacy because what we wanted was a prototype or a demonstration and the clinical trials didn't matter. Um, and then fast forward to end of March, 2023, the federal judge who was hearing the case dismissed it and said, yes, I've looked at the contracts. He's only seen, as far as I know, he's only seen two of the three contracts. There's a third contract that I think is the overarching one that has never been released publicly called the project agreement. Um, but basically the judge said, yeah, if the government says it didn't get defrauded because it didn't ask for clinical trials and Pfizer didn't do clinical trials properly and faked it, and that's what the government wanted, then there is no fraud here, there is no injury, there is no claim, and this case should be dismissed. It's under appeal right now, um, so I don't know what's gonna happen with the appeal, but that's that's where it stood at the end of March. Who, if you know, is is surrounding Brooke Jackson with support to raise awareness of this case because we the people certainly were defrauded in the whole game the question is who is supporting her yeah and what's the status to your knowledge of the effort to get this um not just the appeal but does the would does the appeal get help if there's a broader public awareness of this i can't help but imagine um I don't know the answer to that question. Her family is supporting her. I know that much. She has an attorney mm -hmm. and a legal team. Um, I can't. I can't really comment on how how supported she feels or sure. how much more publicity for her case would help. It's. I. What I'm seeing is. The, the, the four or five strongest folks I could refer to people to wake them up to what's going on, Catherine, includes you. It includes Sasha Ladipova. It includes Dr. Naomi Wolf and what her Daily Cloud and the uh, analysis of the Pfizer documents is doing. And there's a handful of others. Then I think that Brooke Jackson's case would also be among the first four or five that could bang on the door of those who are still asleep 
or those who are preventing the truth of the magnitude of the horror from coming to light. What are your thoughts about that scenario I just described? The scenario of more people knowing about Brooke's case? Yes, Is and that, just yes. the urgency, the urgency of bringing to more of the general public your work, the work of the folks I just described, and maybe I'll ask you, I'll try to ask you an answerable question along okay. these lines. Um, unless you've got reflections on that now, I don't know. Um, you need a, I mean, you need a better I, question. I think the most useful thing about Brooks' case is that it brought this whole statutory construction, regulatory um, fraud. They, they pretended to do a regulatory process and they pretended to do clinical trials and none of those were real or valid. So it brought that to light. The, the problem that I see have seen since then is that new cases are not being filed building on that. It seems like the lawyers that are filing cases still are still focused on the idea that Pfizer may have had some obligation to do a proper clinical study. And we now know that that is not true. So I am frustrated with the inability of the legal front runners to pick up on what happened with Brooke Jackson's case and also pick up on what happened with another Texas case called Bridges versus Houston Methodist Hospital and build cases that will disclose the next layer, which is the US government sponsorship of the whole thing. Um, so that's that's the thing I would say. Like it's it's incredible what she did and that she did it alone pretty much um, by just saying, I'm not gonna let this drop even after the Department of Justice cut her loose. Um, but having new cases that don't take into account what has been revealed through her case is a very big missed opportunity. Who might be the one, two or three people that you consider your peers? Because Catherine, I consider the work you're publishing to be tip of the spear, red hot urgency that could save us. And that's why I, was I'm so honored to have you on and I sought you out to be with me today. Do you have such like that? And besides researching your next articles and posts, what might you be doing to uh, make better connections with other truth tellers like that in order to create some kind of a tsunami? And now I will reintroduce you, Catherine Watt, exposing amazing changes to U.S. law that helped the medical horrors be inflicted on us over the last few years. And here now is important information from TNT Radio. The climate agenda is a national security risk. Where do you hear this? 
From Washington, D.C., this is the Morano Minute with your host, TNT Radio's Mark Morano. The climate and energy policies of California are threatening the security of residents. California has increased crude oil imports from foreign countries from 5% just 25 years ago to more than 75% today. According to Heartland analyst Ronald Stein, California is the only state in the United States that imports most of its crude oil feedstock to in-state refineries from foreign countries. California needs this oil for nine international airports and 41 military airports, as well as shipping ports up and down the coast. Meanwhile, Asia has 88 new oil refineries manufacturing fuel for California's airports and shipping terminals. It's time we recognize that the climate agenda is a national security threat. This is Mark Morano for the Morano Minute on TNT Radio. When the world's endangered animals need help most, when their lives are at greatest risk, when they would otherwise be lost, the International Fund for Animal Welfare is there, taking action to rescue the animals we love, to protect them and their threatened natural habitats. But the danger to animals the world over is growing, and the need for your help has never been more urgent. On land, you'll help stop poachers from threatening and killing elephants and big cats for the illegal wildlife trade. In the oceans, you'll help rescue dolphins, whales, and seals from deadly hazards. And you'll help rescue, rehabilitate, and release vulnerable animals when disasters strike. Here at home and around the world, we can't do this work without you. See how you can help animals and people thrive together at joinifall.org. You're listening to Bruce DeTorres on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. And with me is Catherine Watt, who has produced an amazing timeline called the American Domestic Bioterrorism Program at her substack, bailiwicknews.substack.com, B-A-I-L-I-W-I-C-K news.substack.com. Catherine, did I ask you a coherent question before the break? Do you have anything to share back? Yes. About that? I would say I would say the main people I'm working with now are Sasha and Brooke. And in addition to those two incredible women, I'm working with an organization called We the People 50, which is led by Dr. Jancy Lindsay. Um because that group is focused on going to the 50 state legislatures and educating them about the um, what's happening with the products, what's happening to people who are taking the products, and how the state-level lawmakers have an opportunity to block the laws and repeal the ones that they have in their own states um, to protect the people in their states in their political jurisdiction from the next round, because there are going to be more rounds. Like the, the people who have put together this product line, the mRNA product line, want it to be a platform and they want it to keep going and they want people to keep taking them for many, many different things like coronaviruses, like RSV, like the flu. They're just plugging it into all of these different things. So I'm 
I'm focused quite a bit on that state level work right now. Um, and the one thing I would say about the the lawyers who are still pursuing cases at the federal level, they are very focused still on the idea that this is a product liability or a consumer product framework, which is what I where I disagree with them most. I don't think it's a consumer product. I don't think it's a product liability case. Um, and so their cases lately have been extremely focused on the Countermeasures Injury Compensation Program, which is an alternative mechanism for injured parties to try to get compensation from the government if they've been injured by these products. But it's very, very difficult to work your way through it. You can only get there after um, you can only file a regular lawsuit after you've been denied by the CICP program. And it's modeled on the vaccine injury compensation program that was set up in the 19, 1986. So both of them are a way to make the pharmaceutical companies completely not liable for anything that happens as a result of their products. Um, and so what the lawyers are doing is saying that the countermeasures injury compensation program section of these public health emergency laws should be carved out and that should be declared unconstitutional so that people could sue better. But they are still leaving intact and leaving unchallenged the rest of the public health emergency EUA medical countermeasures system, which in my view leaves intact the whole mechanism for deploying bioweapons on the population and calling them vaccines. Um, so that's that's what I would say about the the prospects for federal litigation um, and my interest in seeing some lawyers step up and challenge the entire statutory construction, not just the CICP. Thank you. We the People 50, is that their URL.com? Is that it? It's, yeah, I can look it up. Um, so handy if it was weave the people five zero dot com, right? I think that's what it is, but it also sometimes I can't right. I'll look it up it. later. Yes, that's what it is. That's what it is. Okay. That's great news. And they are My working gosh. with, with mm -hmm. people in all well, I don't know if they've got people in all fifty states, but they're trying to get groups in all fifty states to to push ahead with these and to work not only with the state legislatures, but also with county commissioners and county um Republican parties and they're having some success. They're having they're having some success at working up from the county level, which could increase the pressure on the state legislatures. And eventually, if enough state legislatures pull out of these programs and repeal their own enabling laws, that puts pressure on Congress to also repeal the public health emergencies statutes at the federal level and repeal the emergency use authorization statutes. For which we should all pray. Back to the distinction you've made about the, what should be the bullseye of the legal efforts so that the right issue is addressed. Have you written or can you refer a, 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 a succinct summary as well as you just described it in, you know, in a few minutes? Have you written up something that just teaches that as clearly as you just described it? Well, the closest I came to doing that was about a year ago. I wrote 
a draft complaint, the beginning of a draft complaint to try to make a bridge from, from what Brooke had, had revealed through her case to, I'm going to lose my train of thought on that. Oh, <clears throat> to 18 USC 2333, which is, now I'm going to forget this. Well, if it's on your Substack, we can all it find is. it. Yeah, but I, oh, it's okay. It's civil remedies for people who have been injured by acts of international terrorism. And in this case, the terrorism is being done by the U.S. government and its agents in other countries and the U.S. military. Um, so to try to make a bridge from that civil remedy for injuries due to terrorism and then through that case open up the door to treason prosecutions for the people who set up the legal conditions so that this whole thing could happen. You published that about a year ago, you say? I published that about a year ago, and oh. I have conveyed that versions of that to a number of different lawyers and groups, and there was so little interest in it that I just set it aside and went back to trying to do the more, well, what I've been doing for the last year of trying to get more people up to speed on the basic timeline. Catherine, what would you like to describe more? Yes, please. More of the, um, I guess, the the horrors that we're up against, if necessary, in a way that allows you to talk from the, the heart. Or maybe you don't, because you allude to, you know, the monster and you allude to this, this, the spiritual perspective as you see it. And maybe you, you just... Maybe you touch on that more or less, and I haven't seen much more about that. But I'm very intrigued about your your heart uh, and why you are so driven to provide so much help um, in, the, in a spiritual context, if you're comfortable describing that kind of stuff with me. Yeah, I mean, I do see it as a... a battle a part of the eternal battle between god and lucifer um i see it as i've read i've read some things about um the fatima um events of 1917 and some things that happened to pope leo the 13th that suggest that at a certain point in time, and I don't know what point this was, God gave Lucifer a bit of a freer hand than he had had previously to interfere directly in the lives of human beings and to corrupt human beings much more directly. And I think that we are somewhere in the middle of whatever that period of time is, and that God has a purpose and a plan for why things are happening the way they're happening. Um, but the goal in general is still to help as many souls to salvation and to eternal life and to not sin and to not be corrupted um, as possible. And so that's 
that's the the supernatural level on which I look at things. And the main the main influence for my looking at it that way is a um, 1990 book by Malachi Martin called The Keys of This Blood, um, which is about he he pitches it as a three way battle between capitalism, communism, and the Catholic faith, um, the Catholic Church. Uh, and so having read that book in the early 2000s when my father gave it to me and then read again in 2021, it helped me build my own working model of what's happening and helped me try to figure out a set of things for me to do in that battle to be helpful. How would you, thank you for that. How would you further describe uh, what America is doing? Wow. It's so, it's just so easy to conclude from the things I've been reading and definitely this conversation that it's just this horrible experiment for the sake of, I don't know what comes first, hurting us and they make money or do they want to make money and there's no this is this is their way of doing it to you know by hurting us but if you wouldn't mind tell me what you know describe what you know about how this fits into we'll call it the globalists agenda because mm -hmm. the you know the the world economic forum and the world health organization talk about that context and yeah. effort as you as you know it right so i haven't I haven't fleshed that out as much as I would like to eventually, but um, based on the work of Catherine Austin Phipps and John Titus and a writer named Adam Labor, who wrote a book called Tower of Basil, I generally attribute the orchestration of it to the owners of the Bank for International Settlements. Um, and the mechanism is their control over influence of however you want to describe it over the central banks of each national government. And then that cascade of financial manipulation or control goes down from the federal central banks to like in the United States, the federal reserve bank to the treasury, to the Congress. And then it goes down another layer through Medicare and Medicaid and social security funding to the state level so that everyone who is susceptible to that kind of financial pressure is told pretty clearly, if you go along with this program, you will continue to get money and your economy will be allowed to limp along in some way. If you don't go along with it, you will not get a stable currency anymore. You will not get to have your economy functioning somewhat. I think that they are imploding it gradually anyway. Like I think we're we're headed to the same destination that they have in mind, which is just servitude for most people in the world and death for a lot of us. Um, but the threat is that they'll do it faster. They'll do it like very quickly in the way that like the great financial crisis in 2008 or the Asian crisis in the late 90s or the Greek crisis in 2013, um, those, those I think were kind of like demonstrations 
so that mm. anyone thinking about putting up a fight would see that and say, hmm, we should probably just go along with this because that's what lies in wait for countries or states that try to stand up. I still think that states and countries should try to stand up because in the standing up, the monster, as I call it, gets pulled more out of the shadows and into the light. And it has to do things in a more aggressive, direct way that makes it much more clear that it's not a benevolent force. The World Economic Forum is not about making the world a better place and making people healthier and happier. It's about controlling people. And um, but but I do recognize that the argument is very persuasive to people who are in a position politically to have to think about like what will happen to my population if all of a sudden Medicare and Medicaid are cut off and Social Security payments are cut off. People will have to figure out private health care. Um, people will have to figure out private banking or all, all of the things that are now centralized at this global level will have to be brought back down to the state and local level. Yeah, that's a, it's a picture I am can, uh, that I see too about current, current affairs, the, the situation, the, the many bubbles. Mm hmm we're on borrowed time in so many ways. I I comment thusly often, this might be, we have to be prepared, I think, for small, medium, or gigantic attacks. I'll call them false flags. Let's call it mm -hmm. a cyber attack where the grid goes down. What grid, Bruce? Well, maybe, maybe this is our last day with electricity. Maybe there's a reason to to do such a giant whammy again. And like you, I totally am devoted to finding and sharing as much truth as possible, believing that when more of us know, more good things will happen. I love your image of dragging the monster out into the light because it's it's we have to indulge the hope that thereby more folks will just not not go along. And try to hold those in power, hold their feet to the fire. We've got just a couple of minutes left, Catherine. What would you add to what we've discussed? What would you reemphasize? What actions would you steer us to along the lines of wethepeople50.com or anything else? Um, I would just emphasize continuing to not comply at the individual level and continuing to work at the local county level and state level, because I think that is a more, more likely to be effective. It's where, it's where, you know, people more, it's where you can be with people face to face and talk about things more easily. Um, and it's, I think through the 10th amendment mechanisms, it has the most potential to pull the power back to the state level Amen. as a way of, oh, yeah, no, I could, we've oh. got the time. I want to encourage everyone to go to okay. your substack, bailiwicknews.com. And not complying becomes a lot easier once someone is informed about the truth. When you, we really see how harmful uh, the strictures are on us. Catherine Watt's been with us. And uh, her, her substack is bailiwicknews.substack. And I hope we stay in touch, Catherine. I'd love you to come back. 
and you. Uh, you know I really appreciate you all the work you do and you're coming and spending some time with me today and this is TNT Radio <laughs> <laughs>